Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and a big shout out to any of the Patreon supporters of this show who may be listening to this episode a day early and ad-free because that is a new service that we offer for our Patreon subscribers and there is an amazing 1,091 of you right now. Now, there's a lot more people who listen to the podcast, but at the moment we have 1,091 patrons, 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 uh, who are contributing $4,231 per month, as you will have known, uh, because you will have heard me bang on about this for the last couple of months. We are trying to get to 5000 per month, which is enough money for us to regularly do two episodes per week. That will be a Monday episode. Philosophy is now coming out on Monday with a new guest every Monday. And then on Friday, we'll do a Friday episode, which will be, of course... Uh, a catch-up episode, a previous philosophy guest, catching up with them, checking back in, seeing how they're doing in their world. So that's our aim. That's what we want to do. And 5,000 is our mark to get that done. We've also added some other levels on the Patreon, 6,000, 7,000, even some levels above that. And you can have a look through there and see what our aims and aspirations are for the show. But in the short term, Monday episode, brand new guest out on a Sunday for Patreon subscribers and then a Friday episode. Uh, hopefully when we get to 5,000, that'll be out on Thursday for the Patreon subscribers. Now, what we're trying to do down at tofop.com, which is the little indie media company that uh, Charlie and I have that make our little shows. Uh, we have, uh, at the moment, four shows in our current roster. So what will happen is hopefully on a Monday, there'll be a brand new episode of Velocity. Uh, on a Tuesday, uh, we're going to bring back my show, Fofop, which is uh, me just having funny chats with comedians. It's not like this. It's not like a deep dive like philosophy, although sometimes it gets like that. The Dave Anthony episodes certainly get into deep dive territory, and so do some of the other ones. But it is a much more silly podcast than this with uh, comedians from all over the world. Um, I have a little regular roster of people who tend to pop up on it a lot. Gareth Reynolds, Dave Anthony, Justin Hamilton, Laura House, Jen Kirkman. Uh, a whole bunch of other people as well. But uh, so that's Fofop on a Wednesday, Tofop, which is Charlie and my original podcast. Over 10 years we've been doing it now, and that will be coming out on a Wednesday. Then on a Thursday, it's our AFL adjacent football podcast. I say AFL adjacent because anyone who listens to it knows that uh, we. We take the AFL as a starting point and then we just have stupid, increasingly stupid and weird conversations around the sport of AFL and weird fan fiction and all sorts of bizarre things. And then on a Friday, it will be the catch-up episode of Philosophy. So what we're hoping is that we can have a show that comes out every day of the week. Well, not every day of the week, every weekday of the week at this stage. So that'll be our little roster. You can find all those podcasts at tofop.com. If you're not signed up to the Patreon page and you want to send me a message about philosophy, you go to tofop.com. You go down to the uh, send us mail menu. There'll be a drop down menu there. You just pick the show that you want to correspond to. If you want to send a message about the footy show, you pick the footy show. If you want to send a message about philosophy, you pick philosophy. It's pretty simple. Uh, and uh, Podcast Mike will be going through all of those, then he'll pass on the relevant ones to me. If you hit me up on the Patreon, patreon.com slash philosophy, W-I-L-O-S-O-P-H-Y, then I will respond to all of those messages personally. Uh, people correspond with me there, they give me feedback on guests, things that have come up in the episodes, and uh, it's a manageable number of people at the moment that I can personally get back to everybody 
who hits me up on the Patreon page. So if you want to get a message to me directly, make sure you check out the Patreon page. Um, extra bonus content coming in the future. But thank you, everybody, for being so generous in your support. You know, this show really is my only job at the moment. You know, the world has changed for a lot of people, and I understand that for a lot of people listening to this podcast, you know, you can't contribute because you're going through a terrible time too. You've lost your job or you're stuck at home and you're struggling with the new environment we find ourselves in. So uh, thank you to the Patreon supporters for supporting me, but also thank you to the Patreon supporters for supporting those people because it's your contribution that means the podcast comes out free for everybody else. And uh, I absolutely love the idea that if you can't afford it, you can still access it. So... (laughs) Uh, I hope that everybody is enjoying uh, what we're making here at tofop.com and of course um, what I'm making here with Podcast Mike and James Fosdyke and everybody who contributes to this show, uh, Willosophy. I think today, this is a ripper. If you don't know Jordan Raskopoulos, you're in for an absolute fucking treat. This is This is one of those ones where I just sat there the whole time just going, oh yeah, that's fantastic. So many brilliant observations about the world, so many interesting ways of unpacking an issue, looking at things, twisting it on its head. Um, Jordan's an absolute ripper and she uh, plugs her Twitch at the end. I think she might be the first guest that I've had on the podcast who plugged their Twitch. So uh, make sure you go and check out Jordan's Twitch stream. It makes me feel a bit young. Uh, that I've got a podcast guest who's plugging their Twitch. I, I might aspire to get somebody on who's plugging their TikTok at some stage, but I hope you're going to really enjoy today's episode. If you do, sign up on the Patreon page. If you can't sign up on the Patreon page, there are other ways you can help support the podcast. The easiest one is tell a friend, pass it on to somebody who you think might like it, give it a rating on iTunes or one of the apps, all those levels of engagement. If you rate it, you write a review, all these things are algorithmic, right? So if you go and do these things, it pushes it up higher in the attention and people find out about the show more. So they are ways you can support it. And I always recommend if you've loved something that somebody has said on this podcast, find them and let them know directly as well. I try to pass on the messages if you send them to me, but let them know that you heard them on the podcast. And the more you let people know that you heard them on the podcast and you like them on the podcast, the more other people want to do the podcast. We don't have a big booking team behind us. It's just me and Mike. Most of the time we book guests on the show either by me hitting them up in their DMs and then Mike following up or if it's somebody that I don't know, you know, I will uh, get Mike to do the official ask so I just don't creepily lurk into somebody's DMs. But look, we're running out of people who I can just jump into their DMs. So the more that people hear about the podcast, then the more chance we have of getting good guests in the future. That's how it works. So thank you very much for your support. I hope wherever you are in the world right now, you're staying staying safe and you're staying, you're looking after your mental health as much as possible, as well as your physical health. And I hope that this show is contributing at least in some small part to that. Uh, We're going to do two episodes this week. Should mention that. We are going to do two episodes this week. So we'll give you a little example this week of how it's going to feel in the future. So today, as a little celebration of the fact that we've got over 4,200, the new Jordan episode. But on Friday of this week, a really great, quite long, but really great chat that I had with uh, one of the funniest people in the world and one of my great mates, Celia Pacola. So 
Seals is back on the show on Friday. So this is an absolute corker of the week. So I recommend head over to the Patreon page, sign up for as little as a dollar a month and support the show. All right. I hope you enjoy this and uh, I'll talk to you again soon. Welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and very pleased to have today's guest on the show. Uh, well, very pleased for a bunch of reasons, but one of them is that uh, I have a technically proficient guest on the show today, which means that our first attempt to do it over Skype, where I couldn't get the audio to work for some reason, meant that this guest could then put us onto a completely other internet network to do this uh, show today. So uh, this is how the podcast starts, guest. I ask the guest who they are. So who are you? Um, I am Jordan Raskopoulos. Uh, I am, I suppose I am a comedian. I'm a digital content creator. Uh, I'm a roller derby enthusiast. And uh, I, I do lots of other stuff too. I'm a Renaissance person. Uh, well, Renaissance person is something that I always like to have on the podcast. So thank right. you. I I enjoy that you've joined the legion of Renaissance people that we've had on this show. Fantastic. But, uh, I suppose that I am a comedian. Let's start with that. What does yeah. what does that mean? Um, well, I think when when people when I say to people, people go, "What do you do?" and I say I'm a comedian, they just presume I'm a stand up. I think, and. Whilst I have dabbled in stand-up, I don't think it is what I do or the main thing that I've, I've done. And I think my career has been so varied um, that I, um, I, don't, I don't feel like I have an adequate um, title to ascribe to what, you know, the, the collective things that I do. Um, so, I, you know, um, because, you know, I bounce between different types of comedy, um, but also do other creative things that I wouldn't really label comedy like cabaret or, or, or spoken word or storytelling and stuff like that. So just freelance creative sometimes works, but that's a bit, it's a bit corporate. Um, uh, and clown, sometimes I just go with clown. Um, but then that, that conjures up something else, uh, which is not me. It is sometimes, but not, not always. So um, you know, language is uh, language is incomplete and and not able to describe some of the experiences that I have. But you know, I've I've, I've encountered that frequently. So I'm very interested in that. Somebody who has a broad dichotomy to their performance style and what they're trying to mm. achieve through being a, you know, a public figure, an entertainer, a, yep. you know, voice in the public sphere. So because uh, mm-hmm. I've done things that are you know not really comedy but they were meant to be comedy they just didn't really work out so uh when you do things that are intentionally not meant to be comedy i'm always fascinated by what you put your energy into and how you decide if something is something that deserves a comedic approach or if it's something that will not benefit from having a comedic approach Mm. um i think i think there is a comedic approach in in everything i do um, largely, I think I think one of my my year twelve English teacher, um, we did a we did you know a, a, a unit on satire when I was in year twelve, and I was um, delighted and inspired by the concept that satire is about speaking truth to power, um, and that the, an effect an effective way of political action or commentary or anything is through humour, and I think that has that has formed um, a lot of the ways that I approach more serious topics when I do, when I speak about more serious topics. Um, I, I guess, you know, I, 
I'm a mental health advocate. Um, I'm transgender, so I talk a lot about a lot of gender issues. Um, and I, but I, I, I need to be funny all the time. Um, so yeah, but I think I think humor is an important and very effective way to communicate and change people. I think I think it's disarming, um, and I think when people are having a laugh, they're they're open to to questioning other things. So talk to me a little bit more about that because it's a thought I've been mm. pondering a lot since. I realised how non-essential our industry is, <laughs> at least in a political sense. You know, one of yeah. the first things to go was comedy come the pandemic and it will probably be one of the last mm. things to fully emerge out of it on the other side. And yeah. it is one of those things that suddenly in society people go, no, we don't need the clowns at the moment. You know, lock up the totally. tent. You know, everyone get in your big car and put on your big shoes and drive away at the moment. Yeah. You are yeah, unnecessary. But also that broader idea of how effective comedy is at speaking truth mm. to power now do you think it is genuinely effective or are there limitations where we feel like we're speaking truth to power but we're really not making much of a difference um look i think it can be i think it can be effective and i i know like through particularly when i came out you know when i came out as trans um about five years ago i came out with a funny video and a funny song and that was um uh advice given to me by who was it um can't even remember who it was, but but their advice was, come out doing what you do, um, uh, and you know d- don't feel like you need to be serious and and tell a sob story and you know cry on someone's shoulder. Come out doing what you do, and I did. You know we wrote a funny song um, and we and I made a funny video and that's how I came out. And you know there were comments, you know there were many comments, um, some toxic, but quite a few being like, oh, I never thought about this in this way. Um, thank you for for doing that and you know i remember one comic in particular was i thought transgender people were crazy but you're not crazy you're very funny and i respect you so maybe i'm wrong um which was which was pretty much the whole comment um so look i think it can be effective i think one of the dangers particularly if you're dealing with irony is that people will take it at face value um and and you know that happens a lot um particularly on twitter where Irony is much less apparent because no one's using their voice, um, um, you know. But even things like you know South South Park is probably a good example of of or it, the, the work of you know Matt Parker and Trey Stone in general, um, when they are being satirical, when they're being ironic. Um, but it is absolutely just taken as f- at face value, and then often encourages the kinds of behaviour it's trying to critique. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think. That answers the second part of the question, and I think the first part about non comedians being non-essential. Um, I think that is uh, mirrors kind of the broader issue um, that somehow governance is just like um, you know governing a society is the same as looking after your household, but just bigger. Um, and re- really, it, it it should be the opposite job, uh, in my opinion. That when you know in your household. You're like, well, times are tough. Um, so we need to cut back on things. Um, and often the first thing you cut you cut back on are the things that bring you, you know, um, joy, um, things that feed your soul, but don't necessarily feed your belly or, or comfort you while you sleep or keep a roof over your head. So, you know, you you, you stop buying DVDs, you stop going out to the, the cinemas, you go, to, you, you know, you cut comedy out of your life. And then you think that the government should do the same and that society should do the same and that society should mirror what you're doing in your house. But, of course, the government's job is to try to return us to balance. Um, 
And if anything, it should be investing more in the arts and it should be saying, well, we realise that you in your homes cannot um, support that industry and cannot even cannot bring that nourishment into your lives. So we as the government are going to take responsibility there and make sure that those industries keep working, um, those people still have jobs and that you still get that thing that you need that you can't afford right now. Um, because even though you might not need, um, you know, might, might not think you need the laughs to survive right now, our, our, our economy, our society is a complicated network of exchange and you start removing pieces from that and the whole thing fucking collapses. So um, there we go. That's, that's a, a, lot of, a lot to talk about. Your turn. I love that though. I, lo- I love what you've said just then because mm. we talk about arts recovery as being some sort of package that we implement once we are able to go mm. back to theatres and do it in public. Whereas what you're saying, which I think is absolutely brilliant, is this idea of if they were really thinking about how they could support the arts, you know, the sim- and I mean, I'm oversimplifying it now, but totally. if you've got a list of all the available comedic artists, all the people who are going to do Melbourne comedy mm. festival shows and all the people who worked in the comedy industry, and instead of, you know, saying, here's a bit of money, we're going to send you a, you know, a really good microphone and a really good video camera because we want yeah. you to make as much brilliant content as you can put out there and we'll cover your internet bills. We've put together a package right now. So not only is there something for you to do once we recover and we can go out and about, but we want you to be creating stuff around your house. We want you to be making shows with your friends. We want the people who are at home and can't go and see these things to be able to access that entertainment for free. So we, the government are going to fund you making it. And then it has the double benefit of keeping you as an artist in work and building an audience that will be there mm. to go and see things when you're out of this. But also, it has the double benefit of entertaining people while they're stuck in their homes. Totally, totally. And I mean, it's for me, um, uh, you know, I'm I'm fortunate that I, I'm i quite good with technology, as we experienced a little earlier. When you were sharing, you were ready. When you were sharing your screen with me to show me what I should be doing to check that the audio <laughs> was working properly, I was yeah. like, this is a woman who was ready for a pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I, I sort of, towards the end of last year, started to do a lot of online streaming and streaming, you know, a combination of gaming and comedy and all sorts of things. So I was kind of ready when when the pandemic hit that I'd already been doing stuff online for, for quite a few months. Um, but I'm finding myself now, a lot of comedians realising, oh, this is probably going to go on a little bit longer than mm. all of us thought. Can I have some help? doing that too um and so yeah i have been helping and advising but you know a lot of this um i have an aptitude for and and a lot of this um so so i was able to kind of get on on quickly but it's a lot it's also a format that works for me in format that i i have passion for and it doesn't suit every artist and i think i think the idea that a lot of artists now need to shift online right now to do their work that is not going to work for a lot of art or a lot of a lot of artists, or a lot of way they 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 think the, the environments they thrive in. So I think I think yes, like here's a microphone, here's a camera. Uh, continue to do your art online, but also realizing you need to thrive in in a different way, and you need to support either to find how that exists now, or or, or support another way in ways to which to continue. Um, and I think ultimately, you know, this is you know, the economic sustainability and cultural sustainability of our society right now needs a surgeon with surgeon's tools. And at the moment, we're trying to do it, you know, um, with a carpenter, with a hammer and a lathe or something. Um, 
Okay, can we circle back then on the first yeah. part of your answer, which yeah. was using comedy when you came yeah. out? And I mm. just so what I try to do, and I hope that this podcast is about, is constantly challenge and the way that you know I've seen the world. You know, particularly being mm. like a white straight guy walking through a world where you know all the you know infrastructure is set up for you to not really be able to see that other people are being marginalized by the systems <laughs> so well speak <laughs> to me about that first before we get into the thing that i was yeah. going to ask well i mean as someone who moved through the world for the first um 32 years of their life um you know appearing to be a straight white man and then have the ex- experience of then living life as a um queer uh white woman uh, transgender woman, um, the fact that I have sat in both perspectives is quite unique. And the fact that transgender people sit in in such shifting perspectives, those who, particularly those who transition later in life. Um, and I think those perspectives are really interesting, really important. And I think you get similar, you know, similar perspectives from perhaps people who um, experience disability later in life. Um, and, you know, when you have two vantage points that you can actually draw comparison to. Um, I think that's really, really important. Like, and, you know, I can speak to how my career has changed through transition and there are things that I expected would happen and there are things that have absolutely surprised me. Um, And I don't think I could have imagined those differences without both perspectives. Okay, so I'd love to get back to Mm. that if we can, but I'll ask you the question I was going to ask you because... yes. I firstly am exa- examining my use of language and, and you know, constantly, mm-hmm. you know, evolving understanding of language. But the second mm-hmm. thing is, and the thing that I, you know, probably have been more guilty of or have been blind to is this idea that when you speak about marginalized communities, you always present them as being marginalized still. So even when mm. you're trying to say to people, you know, hey, let's be respectful of this marginalized community, there is implicit in this, this idea of, because poor them, look at this terrible life that they have yeah. to lead. And totally. to to separate the two things is something that I'm trying mm. to challenge in myself, is the idea of going, acknowledge the ways that it has been more difficult for this person because of this, but also, so to get to what I wanted to start with, which was mm. this idea of coming out through comedy, it presents yeah. the joy of being who you are as well and to speak about those things as a celebration not just as hey we should be you know using this language for this poor marginalized Mm. community is that is something that have i is that i'm that's something that i'm coming to an understanding of is that something that resonates yeah totally look i i think that is a big um yeah a big big thing for me and particularly as you know Trans stories, true and fictional, are, all, are, are quite often stories of, of woe and um, anguish. Um, and I often want to... I, I like being who I am. I like um, that I'm trans. And I like the fact that I have such a unique perspective on so many things um, and that I can uh, teach people about them. You know, like even I know that getting hit in the balls hurts more than getting hit in the tits. <laughs> Right? How wonderful for me to have experienced both and to let you know that it hurts more to get hit in the balls, right? Um, 
and I have just such a fantastic perspective on you know gender and you know some and and some of it's some of it's hard to hear, but some of it's really wonderful and interesting. Um, you know, I have experienced a body that has been testosterone dominated, dominant, and I have experienced a body that has been estrogen dominant, and I can tell you the difference between them. Um, and aren't you curious? Don't you want to know about all these things that I've experienced that you will never get to? Well, I am um, super curious about all those things, and if it's mm. something that you're happy for us to talk yeah, about, yeah, more and I mean, if, if we if we go to a place that I'm not happy, I'll let you know. Yeah, can, please do. That's um, good. So yeah, but just to, just to conti- continue for one second, I I try and find that joy in difference all the time. Um, like I have I have ADHD. I was diagnosed earlier this year, and. I recognise the difficulties in my life that have, that have come from that, but I also recognise the superpowers I have that come from that, that I know that my mind is incredibly reactive and I know that I am excellent in a crisis um, and I know that when I can focus on something, it is fucking brilliant. Um, and those are all really wonderful things, you know, and I, if I talk to children about, you know, I, I remember as a child, you know, well, I know I don't remember as a child. My mum reminds me that when I was a child, I saw uh, a person in a wheelchair and asked her, why is that man broken? And she didn't know what to say. And um, I know what to say now. I, I want to talk about how wonderful their wheelchair is and the fact that without that wheelchair, they wouldn't be able to do this, this and this. But because wheelchairs exist, um, uh, people with wheelchairs can do all of these things that you and I can do and all of these things we can't do they can go fast down a hill in ways we couldn't imagine. Well, we could imagine. We just need a skateboard. But, um, and yeah, I, I think um, I, I'm fascinated by accessibility um, inventions and all that sort of thing. Um, but let's bring it back to what you're talking about. Um, ADHD. That's, yeah. Well, I, but again, it's exactly what you're saying, yeah. which is this joy of being who you are rather than mm. looking at, you know, because we often attach the world, the word sufferer to the end of, you know, yeah. an ADHD sufferer mm. or like, you know, this idea that it, you know, c- can't have some sort of positive impact impact on who you are yeah. or that you couldn't possibly be proud of it. Totally. And, and a, you know, a big part, like you said, of, of kind of trying to get the um, pejorative connotations around difference out of our minds is, is to change our language. And, and not to use words like sufferer and we start, you know, and, and also not to position neurotypical people in the, in, in, as normal or cisgender people as normal or white people as normal or default or whatever. We, once we eliminate the fact that there is a default setting for humans and then there are, you know, variant DLC add-ons that are the, 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 the once we accept that human beings are a diverse species with diverse opinions and diverse experience and we all deserve respect and we can all learn from one another. I remember talking to someone in America and they were telling me that I had a great accent and I complimented them on their accent. I said, you have a great accent also. And they were like, oh, no, 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 I don't have an accent. Yeah. I'm American. Like this idea that somehow American was the default accent and then everything else was, you know, different and unusual. It's outrageous. It's outrageous. If anything is default, it's Welsh. So can we, and again, like, and you've said it out loud anyway, but it is also the principle of this podcast is if I Mm -hmm. ever ask anything that you don't want to talk about, let's just move on from it. But Mm -hmm. um, if it's okay, can we go back to that time 
before you came out? Like, was that a tough time in your life? Was it something you were particularly struggling with at the time? Uh, look, it's it being I, I have been trans my whole life. It's, it's yes. um, and you know, the experience of gender dysphoria is something that I experienced since childhood. I have vivid memories, you know, from being four years old and onwards. Um, I can remember you know, making wishes on my birthday cake as a child to wake up the next day as a girl and I can have wishes as an adult doing the same thing. Um, uh, so those experiences are new. Um, but to be honest, growing up at a time when I did, you know, I am 38. So um, the amount of discussion around trans identities that we've had in the last five years, I had none of that to the point that I came out. And, and perhaps my coming out has contributed somewhat to that discussion. The only kind of trans representation I had from media um, was uh, the butt of a joke um, or, um, you know, things like Ace Ventura or um, uh, Jerry Springer. You know, I think the only real trans people I ever saw were on, on Jerry Springer. Um, and I, I wasn't equipped with the language to describe the way that I felt. Um, and so I didn't even know what it was um and the few accounts of um trans experiences i had engaged with didn't feel like mine um because i was i was um you know trans people in my head were people who were very feminine through their well trans trans women very feminine through their childhood um and I wasn't. I wasn't particularly feminine. I was quite, you know. I'm still am, you know, in in the in the scale of things. I still play full contact sport. I still, you know, like things like video games and Ninja Turtles and and, and whatever. Um, so for me, I'm like, well, that that's not me. It it must be something else. Whatever these feelings are, I, I don't know. Maybe uh, probably everyone feels this way some of the time, um, because I, it, and it would often manifest as envy. Um, for for women that I saw around me. But the turning point for me, I think, was in 2016. No, 2014, 2014. Um, we, Axis of Awesome, we were on tour in uh, the UK and it was a poorly routed tour and there was a lot of driving and a lot of travelling between cities. And um, I would read and play on my phone and you know sometimes I'd you know be drawn back to thinking about the trans stuff and start reading about trans stuff and encountered uh, a paper that was written by a, um, a psych in San Francisco who, who helped trans patients and in that paper she listed a bunch of trans archetypes that she'd observed with her patients and in in there was the archetype that I kind of had been accustomed to you know the, the person who's very feminine feminine usually identifies as a gay male before for transitioning and, and then lives as a straight woman and this that and the other and then listed another archetype which was um you know identifies as female but often pursues quite masculine pursuits in an attempt to prove their own masculinity and conquer the conflict within and blah 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 um often plays sports, sometimes signs up for the military uh, and usually starts to take their, their gender experience um, um, uh, quite seriously after trying everything in the, um, uh, you know, after getting married, having kids or whatever, and in their early 30s starts to realise that the feelings are not going away and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, ah, oh, ah, oh, shit a brick, that's me. Hello. Um, 
And then what went on with the um, article is she kind of went through the, the various, um, some, you know, experiences that she'd had and people that she'd met and talked about the, these um, people in, in different decades of their lives. And I remember, uh, you know, reading what, you know, reading in there what my life was, was like as a, as a teenager and as a person in my 20s and what it would be like in my 40s, 50s, 60s and beyond if I got that far, um, if I were not to transition. Uh, and so I saw a mirror into my own future and I was quite frightened because what I saw was essentially oblivion uh, or just like, um, I, and I remember there was one description that she described someone in their 80s who who hadn't transitioned and the resignation to uh, living their life as a gentleman. And I didn't want to resign myself to living as a gentleman. And I didn't want to die. Um, and I thought that that would probably, not that I've made any attempts, I'm, I'm not someone who's made, who's made an attempt and there's no shame if anyone has. Um, uh, but I didn't want to die and I thought that dying from my um, untreated or, you know, unhelped gender dysphoria would be on the cards if I didn't transition, that I needed to transition or I might die from it. It Was it um, something that as soon as you, like, did you feel like there was a moment where you go, okay, I understand, like fully am committed to this idea now or is this, I mean, obviously it had been a lifelong process, but you're talking about the idea of reading something and having something click in your brain. Yeah. Does that mean that then from that moment on, you're really like, this is a process that I am now fully committed to? Yeah, look, I, I like I obviously had like flirted with the idea before then, but it was, yeah, that after that article and then I remember the hotel room in Real in Wales and I sat there and I'm like, yeah, I'm doing it. And then that was it. And then, so how do you then decide who you're going to talk to about it? Um, yeah, that that's that's hard. <laughs> um, but, you know, and it, was, and it was hard to navigate as well as someone with a public profile. Um, um, but very slowly started to speak about, speak to it, about, you know, to the most important people in my life. And then... Um, for me, that um, process was of transitioning was slow and negotiated with um, family and people around me, and because because there was, you know, the sense that once I came out, it would be news, and I needed to be ready for that, and people around me needed to be ready for that too. So it was from the time of making the decision to actually coming out was over a year, like our coming out public was over a year, and I was on hormones for over a year before actually making any announcement publicly. So the medical process you hinted at before, the fact mm. that you know, sure. you know, what it's like to, you know, have, uh, you know, different hormones flowing through your body. Speak yeah. to me a little about what your understanding is from that on a hormonal level. Oh, sure. I mean, a, a lot of people, when they talk about transition, they often focus on surgery. They always think that surgery is like the thing, but hormones are the thing. Like, it is like, and it's now that I've might been hormonally female for more than five years now. It is quite hard to remember what it was like beforehand. Um, but so, I feel like there are emotions and aspects of your. I'm the same person, but there are emotions that acts and aspects of my feelings and sense of self that are heightened depending on my hormonal hormonal state. Um, so when I was um, 
you know, and and these kind of move in parallel parallel with the you know trends and tropes that we have around gender. Um, I felt that when I was um, testosterone dominant, um, the the it would heighten um, my rage, aggression, um, and horniness, um, and uh, estrogen, you know, emotional sensibility would increase. Um, you know, I'm much more likely to cry, much more um, um, affectionate. Um, but also, there were also changes to physical sensation. My sense of smell is different now. Um, like, uh, I remember, like, things smell the same. They just have more of an emotional affect. So... I remember smelling flowers after, you know, being early in transition. So the effects were quite heightened and going, oh, my God, flowers are beautiful. Flowers <laughs> give me feelings. Holy shit. Um, and it was such a shift in perspective. And I'm like, oh, this is why this is why chicks dig flowers. Um, um, and um, pregnant women kind of experience that because preg- the estrogen levels in pregnant women are much higher than they are at um other times and yeah sense of smell and taste and things like that shift um with the amount of estrogen in in, in your body um uh but one of the things that happened was starting hormones within a couple of weeks my body felt right as well and like the i didn't realize that i had dysphoria from the hormones in my body like you know Brains are a mystery. Neurology is a fucking mystery. But my brain knew that the way it felt was off. And then once this was in my body, it it was like, oh yeah, this is this is this is bright, um, uh, which is wild, um, and so so fascinating. So uh, you speak a lot about mental health, and you know you're very passionate mm. about advocating on behalf of mental health. One of the things that obviously gets tied up. Uh, you know, in this discussion at the moment is how we speak to children about these issues, you know, Mm. whether it's debates over safe schools programs, but at the heart of that is how do we talk to younger people about, you know, differences and, you know, understanding those differences and, you know, um, in a way that gives a young Jordan, you know, more Mm. information and more role models and more options to be dealing with what young yeah. Jordan was dealing with. What what are your thoughts around that? Um, I mean, look, kids, uh, people always talk about kids being, oh, you're going you're to confuse them, you're going to confuse them. Kids are confused by bloody everything. Everything is new to them and everything is exciting and everything is more complicated than they can understand. Um, but um, kids have incredibly plastic brains and they're loving creatures and um, they, they just want to learn, right? Um, so you speak to children in language that they understand, and you and you use and, and you and you you keep from them information that you know they don't need to know at the age that they are, and they will they will um, be incredibly accepting and the best allies you've ever seen, um, because they're not they're not coming into anything with any prejudice because they they don't have enough knowledge to form prejudice, you know they, they they're just sponges ready to listen and and and. And whatever. So, all, all you need to say is, you know, that some people are different, and you know, this is how they're different, and um, and they'll be like, oh, I didn't know that. Awesome, I know a new thing, you know. Um, and it's like, because um, you can't, you can't really. The the problem you encounter is if you start to keep information about difference from children, they will struggle when they're older and they encounter it. Um, 
And the thing is, young kids are going to encounter trans and queer people in their lives. There is going to be, you know, a gay mums at the school, you know, and if as much as you may think you're helping your child by not telling them about gay marriage or homosexuality or whatever, they're going to have questions about the two mums at school, you know, and they're going to be honest questions and you can just give them honest answers. Like sometimes people have two mums, sometimes people have no mums, sometimes people live with their grandma and a dog and sometimes people have a dad but the dad's not in their life and maybe they see them every so often or whatever. Um, and I, so I think we, we, that's how we, we can talk to them. And I think we also, we um, give them diverse media to enjoy as well. That, um, and I think that's a big thing is, um, you know, seeing children's books that have families that are different to theirs. And, that, and, and, th- and for that not to be the point of the book as well, you know, just to have diversity in the background of things, I think is really important. Um, I'm a big, 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 big fan of a cartoon series called Steven Universe, which is um, primarily about uh, three rock ladies from outer space and a little boy called Steven who fight aliens together. Um, and th- their names are Garnet, Amethyst and Pearl, and Steven is Steven, but also has the power of rose quartz. Um, but um, beneath the surface of that show is is a, um, a a lot of queer themes, but also a non-typical family because Stephen lives with the Crystal Gems. They are his aunts. His his mother was Rose Quartz. And his dad is in his life, but his dad isn't a great dad on paper, right? So his dad lives in his car, um, works at the car wash down the road. But he still has a relationship with his dad and his dad loves him and they have a beautiful, lovely relationship. But he's just not capable of looking after him but it's not a pejorative thing it's not look at this deadbeat it's not look at this shithead it's like look at this different family and the way that this dad is in this kid's life you know and that's so unique and fascinating and non-judgy and beautiful and there's themes like that all throughout it it's it's one of the best things you could try to keep it's one of those interesting things isn't it like because obviously we all well i don't think we do all understand if you see it, you can be it um but i think mm. that people are coming to a greater understanding of the idea that representation matters. It's hard to do something unless Mm. you can see other people doing it as well. But that second thing, which is taking it from not just diversity being the storyline about diversity, but it just being part Mm. of the general storyline of our lives and, you know, being represented in that manner. It's very fascinating. So mental Mm. health was also part of that question. I mean, I mean, just to, just to, can I, could I, could I make another point there? My experience in acting as well, you know, I I used to be someone who very much fit a quite popular acting brief of portly gentleman with expressive face, got a lot of auditions, and suddenly my brief was transgender woman, which is um, far less, far far fewer casting decisions, fast casting choices, not zero, but I would often get, I wouldn't get opportunities to audition, people would approach me to play the role. But only in the last six months, a couple of times, I've ne- I've been booked to do roles that have absolutely nothing to do with being trans. Um, and I think that's really good. I think that's really good. Okay, so mental health was the other part of that question. Mm. So yeah. talk to me about, I guess, firstly, your own you know insight into mental health and then what your broader thoughts are about how we deal with mental health. Because, I mean, obviously during... Mm. 
this pandemic situation, mental health being yeah. one of the major things that we have to have an increased focus on. I mean, I think in general we have to have an increased focus on, but if one in four Australians seems to be the statistic who are struggling mm -hmm. with some sort of mental health issue, you know, at the moment is correct and it's probably underreported, I would imagine, you know, give me some of your insight into mental health and why you've been passionate about that yeah. topic. Um, look, I think, I think one of the, you know, the big things about mental health that we're not doing is we, we are forgetting that the brain is part of the body. You know, mental health is physical health. You know, it's they're the same thing. It's just that the brain is a mystery. Um, and it's, and it's, and it's, and the experiences, the poor health of someone's brain is not something you can visualize or see, but, and, and because of that, we treat, we treat it as, as something separate to physical health. And, you know, if someone rings up the work, someone rings up and says, I can't come into work today. I have broken my leg. Then it's like, cool. You, you know, you, you can't do your job because your job is a leg job, you know, that you can't do. That makes sense. We understand. But if you ring up and say, I can't come in, I am depressed. There isn't that level of understanding or empathy. People don't, and people don't realize that depression can be, or meant, you know, can be um, a thing like breaking your leg in terms of um, impeding your functionality in society. Um, so I, I think the biggest biggest thing we need to do is we start to think think of mental health as health in the same way as we think of everything else, and um, you know, forcing someone to push through illness or injury in order to func um, to function is is not healthy. Um, similarly, we, we need to, you know, get rid of the stigma around um, health and uh, mental health and, and understand there is nuance in it um, and that being brain healthy, um, we, we are all probably um, unhealthy in our brains in some manner in the same way we are all unhealthy in our lives in some manner, you know, that and, and we can all be healthier um, through a bunch of different practices and, you know, exercise um, cutting certain things out of your life that are toxic um, um, or, or medication or whatever. Like it is so nuanced. And I feel like because we don't speak about that nuance, we, we, we reduce everything to a dichotomy. Like we just make a binary of um, sane and crazy, you know, and there, there are people whose mental health is so, so, so poor that it disables them. Um, and that is true, but that is it is not a binary, um, and and also some sometimes it isn't it isn't un, un, it isn't unhealthy. It is just diverse as well. That not every not everything is a disorder, um, it, it, and I think there are a lot of things that are labelled disorders simply because it um, the person does not is not capable of functioning in the way our society expects. And that's sort of the, one of the things that I'm, I'm learning about ADHD in, in my brain and, and things like that. It's like my brain thrives in certain environments. And if society provided those environments, you know, if I lived in a society that provided those environments for me, then I probably would need less help than I do. But our society has certain expectations on on what makes a functional person and so i need help functioning in this society it's so uh, simple what you've said and yet so 
revolutionary in a lot of ways because mm. that idea oh. of the brain being part of the body I think is a powerful idea but secondly that idea mm. of normalizing the experience of it you know in that you can have sore hips you can have broken hips you can need a hip replacement mm. they're all varying degrees of your hips hurting that there are varying degrees yeah. of your brain hurting as well and the fact that you know everybody understands what it's like to you know, experience some sort of sadness or depression around an event mm. in their life that has you know triggered that that to extend that yeah. thought to well there is a sliding scale of that feeling sometimes people feel like yeah. that even when their nan hasn't died when everything appears to be exactly. okay they feel like what you felt like when your nan died exactly and i think that's that's when i talk about anxiety because you know i'm an anxious person too um and um when people are like well everyone gets anxious sometimes i'm like yes but my relationship with anxiety is disordered. I am terrified of things that uh, you would find quite easy. Um, and I find quite easy things that will terrify you. Um, that, that, and, and, that, and the other thing that people, people kind of um, find difficult to, to keep a finger on is constancy as well. Um, you know, you may, and I feel like there are a lot of, men who have who are critical of 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 women who sort of come forward talking about her, things like harassment or, or whatever and they're like particularly in the gaming world because i'm moving in the gaming world but you know you're like oh everyone cops abuse online everyone cops abuse online and then you kind of got to say well but imagine that those examples that you brought up imagine that being every day you know imagine it being constant imagine it'll be imagine you know imagine that sadness you have about your grandma dying imagine that being constant even when um you know, your grandma hasn't died. So not just not just even when your grandma hasn't died, all the time. Um, and imagining constancy is really hard, I think. It's interesting what you say because you do have an insight into the gaming world and often, mm. unfortunately, it seems to be a manifestation of, you know, some of our worst impulses. And it does seem... It can give you an unfavourable look at what certainly the next generation of young men and maybe not just young men, you know, might think about the world that we're coming into. Is that fair yeah. or is that overstated? Because I'm, I'm someone who is looking at that world externally. Yeah. Mm. Um, look, I think it's, I think it is a, like many spaces, a diverse space. I think it definitely has issues with toxicity and, to and um, uh, toxic people. I think the fact that... Um, um, anonymity um, in any environment allows people to be assholes without consequence. Um, so um, I think you will find that in any any environment where anonymity can be a thing. Um, but I also think the gaming space has is such a beautiful space as well. And there actually there are diverse groups of um, gamers, but also game creators who are making these wonderful experiences in in a medium that is interactive and changing. And um, I, I think that um, the, it, there is a variety of things that it, to experience in the gaming world. I think it's um, incredible. Yeah, I, I like. It's just you need to find the spaces where you are safe. It's it's what it's a bit wild. It's a wild space. Uh, bloody... I, I want to talk to you about uh, roller derby in a second. But just before we move yeah. on, one of the questions that I get a lot, and I am mm. cognizant of the fact that I don't think it's the responsibility of people who are, you know. Uh, in diverse communities 
to explain you know their world to mm. those who aren't in that world but um yeah. seeing that you've said that you know part of what you are passionate about doing is telling those stories one of the questions i get quite a lot and i think it's meant in a positive way which is people saying i am not a member of one of these communities but how can i mm -hmm. help how can i be mm. better what is it that i can do that is going to make the life experience of these people a better experience do you have any tips for people who are looking for ways to, you know, to be better allies, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I, I want to just address the first thing you said. So I do feel a responsibility to speak about those things, but my responsibility is not to you. Mm. You know, my, my responsibility is to society in general. I think we all have a responsibility to contribute to our society. And my responsibility is to people like me who don't share privileges that I do. Um, transgender people who don't have access to platform to, to speak with you and, and reach many voices. People who don't have access to language like I do and the ability to articulate complicated ideas in ways that people can understand. So my responsibility to talk about trans issues is to the next transgender person you speak uh, or, or the next, you know, people listening, the next transgender person uh, you speak for whom they know they don't need to do this work for you because I've done it for them and they may be incapable of doing the work um so I, I feel I feel I, I'm a, I don't quite like that it's not my job to educate you uh, phrase because I feel like it is it's not but my responsibility is, is is not to you it is to who you may meet um so uh and the next thing um is uh how to be a better ally and I think I think the the thing is, um, recognizing privilege and recognizing what privilege means, I think, is is the first step to being an ally. And I think the the phrase, the word, gets chucked around a lot. And I think I think it's we've lost touch with what its what its actual meaning is. Privilege is something good that you have that somebody else does not. You know, so everybody has privileges. Everybody has privileges, and there are privileges to to having any kind of identity. Um, and I, but I think, and, it, and it's recognizing what your identities, uh, what privileges they bring you and whether any of those are unfair. And if you recognize that some of them are fair, unfair, it's about taking responsibility, um, for changing that. And, um, you know, and I, I, I think shame is a really a bad motivator and it's not something I have as, as in, in my philosophy. I live with shame for so long that it's not something I wish upon someone else. So when I call out someone else's privilege, I don't want to shame them. I want to instill in them responsibility, a sense of responsibility for who they are or things that they have that they, that might be unfair, that I think are unfair. If I can con convince them to see things from my perspective. Um, so I, I think that that is, that is a thing. Um, the other thing I think is, is really helpful to be an ally is um, believing people when they speak about their feelings. Um, so, and I, and I deal with this, like, I think with, when I talk about comedy a lot, um, you know, when sort of some people say, oh, you're not really offended or, oh, you can't be offended. Oh, it's just a joke. Um, and trying to minimize someone who says, well, I'm, I'm hurt by that. And they're like, oh, you can't be hurt. It's not, it's not hurtful. It's just a joke. Um, I think when someone says they're hurt, I think they're telling the truth. But your decision is not to decide if they're hurt or not. Your decision is to decide if you give a shit. Um, and you're allowed not to give a shit. Um, 
Um, and I think, um, and I, quite often I will make jokes or, or do things that will offend people, but they are people I intend to offend. So I'm okay with them being hurt. Or, or if someone says that they're hurt and I don't really respect their opinion, I, I deal with that and I deal with the consequences. Um, and, but ultimately I think that thing of, of believing people, people's experiences aren't real is, is a problem. I think, did that answer the question? Yeah, that's great. I loved all of that. Yeah. Every bit of that I oh, loved. Cool. Uh, can I ask yeah. you about the last part of your question when I asked you who you were, Yeah, which was uh, roller derby. Now, roller derby is one of those things yeah. that I've always been fascinated by, but I have absolutely no understanding of. So sure. please talk to me about like how you found roller derby. What is it about it that you love? And I'm going to, cause I like, I'm going to ask this question in three parts because you're yeah. good at picking things apart and then answering all of the parts. So how did you find okay. it? What was it that made you fall in love with it? And thirdly, so, could you please explain it to me? <laughs> okay. Um, so I, I have played like full contact sport for most of my life. I played rugby from about eight years old up until about 22. Um, and then, and then kind of did my knee and then, uh, did martial arts and stuff like that. And, um, when I began transitioning, I wanted to continue doing sport. And at the time I was doing martial arts and I couldn't see myself transitioning in that space. Um, and, and not have to constantly explain myself to people either new people moving in the space or, or whatever. Um, and I didn't want to do that work in that environment. You know, I, I, I if, if I'm having a sport in my life, that's for me. So I needed to find an environment where my body not only would not be questioned, but would be celebrated. Um, and, uh, you know, I knew that that was Derby, um, you know, because Derby came out of, um, well, modern Derby came out of counterculture counter to start with. It has been extraordinarily pro progressive in terms of um, trans and queer inclusion and celebration. Um, and it's further ahead than any other sport in the world. Like um, the Derby, um, the WFTDA, the Women's Flat Track Derby Association, um, their policy around gender now, so, you know, stuff like the Olympics, the policy is, you know, if you've been on hormones this many years and blah, 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 science, um, which is real and true and, blah, blah, you know, um, um, but the, 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 um, the Derby policy now is if you feel that um, this place is right for you, then you are welcome. You know, this is, you know, it started as, you know, a, a women's and non-binary identified thing. This is not a men's league, um, but it's not for us to police your identity. If you feel this is a place for you, then you are welcome. Um, and... Um, you may need to repeat the other parts of the, parts of the okay. question. Okay, well, the second one was um, what then... So, yeah. Okay, I understand that's an open invitation. That's an open door, right? Um, but yeah. but then you've got to enjoy the actual sport itself, not just oh, yeah. the inclusiveness of it. So talk to me about what yeah, what totally. made you an enthusiast. Um, I, I the, the, the fact that it is a full contact sport where you get to wear a leotard um, <laughs> is great, you know? Um, uh, uh, um, it's... It's awesome. I mean, I love, I love, I love full contact sport. I get a rush from it, um, um, and the fact that it's like you get dress up in outfits and wear roller skates and smash into each other. That's that's bloody great way to spend your Sunday morning. And do you have a name? Is it, do you, like because normally you have a roller derby name, right? You do have a roller derby. My name is Judge Booty. Right. <laughs> 
Uh, so can you explain to me a little of how actual roller derby, what are the rules? Because I, I've watched it, obviously, but I don't understand it. Yeah, it is It is a very complicated game to watch and you could watch a whole game and not pick up anything about it. The first thing um, is there's no ball. People always ask me where the ball is, there's no ball. It's not, it's not a game with a ball. Um, and so you have, uh, the game is, is played in two halves and each half is made up of a number of jams, right? Like plays in, in American football or whatever. So a jam can last upwards of tw- of two minutes, okay? So in each jam, each team will field five players um, and you're playing on an oval circuit, a track. And basically one player from each team is the jammer and they have a star on their helmet. And the jammers are basically having a race with one another around the track. The other four players from each team are called the blockers. And the job of the blockers is to help their jammer win the race and impede the other team's jammer from the race. Um, so the jammers are doing laps of the of the circuit. The blockers are hitting them, trying to knock them out or hold them in place and clear the path for their own jammer. The jammer scores a point every time they lap a blocker from the other team. Oh. So, so if you can complete a circuit and get past the four blockers on the other team, you yeah, get four right. points. If you can hold the other team's jammer down while your jammer does laps and laps and laps and laps, you can get 16, 20, 30 points in a jam. Um, the other thing is the first jammer to get past the other t- uh, to get past the other team is called the lead jammer, and the lead jammer can stop the jam. So. Quite often, if you get lead, if you're the first jammer through, you complete and get your four points, you will stop the jam before the other team completes their lap. Um, and then after the jam's over, you repeat. Um, and you jammers generally don't jam multiple jams in a row. And so you've got a squad of 14 and you, you swap your, your players between jams. You try and read what their strategies are, how they're blocking, which jammer pairs better with their jammers, um, and that. And there's a lot of thought and tactics to it. And there, and there are, slightly, you know, more complicated rules, a lot of different ways to get penalties. Um, and penalties are quite frequent. And if you get penalised, you need to um, leave the track and sit in the penalty box for 30 seconds. And your team doesn't have you as one, one less player while that happens. So, and that could be the jammer. So if the other team's jammer goes into the bin, you have what they call a power jam, where your team only has to play offense and you can get some big points because the other jam is not on the track. Uh, Okay, well, that's great because I now not only feel like (laughs) I understand it, but I now feel like I'm an enthusiast. It sounds like the best game of all time now that I understand what's going on. It's so exciting. And there's there's some great, like, yeah, there's great ways to troll in that game as well because there's a thing where if you get knocked out of bounds... You have to re-enter the track behind behind the person who knocked you out, um, or you'll get a penalty. So if you knock the jammer out and you skate backwards as fast as you can, you can make force them to go all the way back to the start of the wall and try and get through again. And if you're the jammer and you knock it, knock the other team's jammer out, you can make them do laps backwards um, and and all sorts of stuff like that. So there's like a lot of tactics. It's like chess on roller skates where you're the ball and people are throwing bricks at you. 
the the vague conceit of this show is that I ask people if they have a philosophy of some kind. Life, love, mm-hmm. doesn't ma- really matter yep. what it is, but I just like to n- know if people have some sort of guiding philosophy. Do you have one? Mm. I do. I do. I do. Um, and there's a story behind it. A few years ago, away with some friends on, on New Year's Eve, and they were uh, listening to Macklemore. Oh, yeah? <laughs> and... Uh, the the song about um uh the i can't change um i can't change even if i tried um i misheard the lyrics of that song and i heard i can't hate even if i tried and then i kind of took away from that i'm like what would it be like if i didn't hate and i'm like i'm gonna make that my new year's resolution next year I'm going to try and not be hateful and I'm going to try and challenge myself to um, approach situations where even if someone is hateful to me, even if I have every reason in the world to hate someone, how how could I um, overcome those challenges without hating in myself? And that has been a principle that I try and hold on to. It's not possible all the time and it's not, it's not even justified all the time. Um, but I feel like if I can approach every situation um, with compassion, empathy, and kindness as my primary and not hate as much as possible. That's, that's, that's it. It's interesting though. I, I love that. I, that's uh, a really fantastic philosophy. And it's certainly one that I've been thinking about a lot mm. in my life because I, the, the amount of wasted effort hate is most of the time mm. as well. When you can, like, you know, there are plenty of people, you know, say, to use the ultra example in our world at the moment, Donald Trump. It yeah. is very justified <clears throat> to hate Donald Trump yeah. and the incredible damage that he is doing to the world. But there is nothing to be gained from me seething with hatred in my real life for Donald no. Trump. I can sort of acknowledge the idea that the things that he does are worthy of hatred and then save my compassion and energy and empathy for those who are the the you know the victims totally. of the things that he is doing but also my, your energy is probably best spent in criticism rather than hatred mm. or um um you know or, or or constructing alternatives or or whatever that the energy that goes into hating him just that's it that's its end point um yeah. Uh, I have some standard questions that I like mm-hmm. to ask. This has been fascinating. If you've got a little bit more I've time, got... we still have a few oh, more standard yeah. questions. Uh, so um, I like to know what you think happens when we die. Do you have any belief around that? Um, I, I believe that when we die, um, the, we it's the same as before we existed. That what, However we were before we were born is how we are when we die. Um, we just aren't. I like that. Um, can I ask then... In a world where life has no greater meaning, you know, no mm-hmm. traditional meaning in the way that we understand from organized religion and, you know, this yep. idea that our life is meaningful for other reasons than just of itself. How do you construct meaning in your own life? Um, I mean, I, 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 I think that life, you know, does have meaning. I just don't think our, our, our single, singular consciousness is all of it. Um, you know, we are a species, we are a universe. Um, whatever impact and legacy we leave behind is significant in some way. And um, I, you know, I believe that um, 
many things exist beyond my ob observance and um, beyond my comprehension. And who 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 knows and who cares <laughs> um, <laughs> what possibilities they are there are? Because I think there's a part of me that thinks that they're all possible. And I, you know, I'm quite. Um, I don't know if you ever seen that. You know, um, the little that talk about how to how to. Um, think about ten dimensions. I don't know. Are you familiar with that one? No. Where you kind of exist, you know, things. You, we. It's easy for us to ex think of things in three or four dimensions, and what a fifth dimension might be. Uh, and it's and it's a little bit mathematical, a little bit philosophical. Where it's sort of you know, there is a line, and then there is another line intersecting the line, and then there is a curve that connects those two lines together. Um, and then once you go into ten dimensions, you're like. You know, that is the dimension where you start to consider all the things that are, all the things that have been, could be, all the things that might be, and all the things that might not be, and all the things that could never be, and they all exist. Um, and I think that's, I think probably that's in there somewhere, that everything possible and impossible and everything unthinkable exists. <laughs> Do you imagine that we are alone in the universe or do you imagine that there is other you know intelligent life of some kind? um i i i think um i don't i think there is life elsewhere i think that that is a mathematical certainty um i think uh whether other cultures um um adapt in the same way um uh i don't know what's the i can't remember the the thing but the you know the the probability that if intelligent life existed elsewhere in the universe, we would have encountered it by now, even if only as radio signals. And the fact that we haven't means we are, um, means something's up. Um, so, um, look, I think, yeah, I think there's something out there. Um, and, but something's up. How do you think we are going as a human species? Like, the, you know, oh. the doomsdayers would say that, you know, with the challenges that we're about to face with the, well, that we are already facing mm -hmm. through climate change and the environment and the state of the planet combined with the fact that we're going through a global pandemic where we're not concentrating yep. on any of those things at all might mean that we're at a really critical point in the actual history of humankind. If we happen to mm. be alone in the universe or even if we're not, mm. this incredible thing that has happened the rise of humanity and the creation of everything that human beings have created might be towards the end point rather than you know in the middle or mm. towards the beginning how do you feel about that where do you feel like human beings are at at the moment yeah look i feel like human beings are a species um headed towards inevitable extinction um and i think that's okay um i think we are, we've had it we've had a run um <laughs> no i like i like i think um uh we are we are a selfish and destructive species and that that and and, and very intelligent um but that ultimately that is going to be self-terminating um that selfishness um will win over our foresight um and you know i often have this thought looking out the windows of planes when i see places where people aren't living and think of the climate and think of you know the, the way that we have wrestled the world to our will and the damage, when you talk about the damage, the damage that we've done, and also the knowledge that the world has experienced catastrophes in eons past, that there have been um, climate-changing events in the past. They have been horrible for a long, long time, and they have caused extinctions across, you know, across the, the many species that exist, but that the world 
persists beyond that and that there are there is life that adapts to that and there is life that thrives in different conditions and that we may um, terminate ourselves at one point in the distant or not too distant future but that the world will survive and right itself over a long long time and that something will thrive here and maybe something better maybe something worse but I just think you know there will something will thrive the current uh, world situation we are going through is one that I think we all now have to acknowledge at the very least nothing will ever mm. be the same this will be one of those experiences that if we're lucky to live long lives you know and this be yeah. the big thing unfortunately i don't feel like it's going to be i feel like we've got this is practice mm. and there's a lot worse coming but sure. but let's just say this by itself already is going to be defining so much of what happens in the next five years the next 10 years probably even the next 20 mm. years will be because of what we are currently going through now do you have optimism that we will come out of this better people or do you think that the world will return to a worse normal than before um look i i it's hard to say there's a part of me that does have optimism um even before this year i, I kind of had this for you know looking at history after times of great calamity the pendulum kind of swings back um, to us being caring and compassionate for one another and building good things and building society, um, more progressive societies, let's say that. And, uh, you know, a few years ago, I'm like, we need something, we need a fucking world war if we're going to actually, like, turn ourselves around and, and, like, look after each other for a little bit. Um, and then this happened, I'm like, well, this may be that. Um, and, you know, I've, I observe, you know, I feel like, society it's a pendulum that swings between you know and I don't want to say conservative and progressive I don't want to say left and right you know but I feel like a society to reduce it to a dichotomy you you need to have periods of time where you compete with one another and you have periods of time where you cooperate with with one another and I feel like we have been competing and we've been encouraging ourselves to compete for a long time and I think that has harmed people and i think we need to swing back to cooperating um and um hopefully those that profit from competition and those that control the media and encourage us to have that sense of competition hopefully they don't have so much power because i feel like that is what is that is what is the biggest impact from us to turning to it being a cooperating um, society is the fact that there is a media that thrives on us competing with one another. That is genuinely the best way I've ever heard that expressed because so many times we get caught up, I think, in the politics of left versus right or mm. good versus yeah. evil in these ideas, whereas you've expressed it in a way that takes away those pejoratives or, you know, mm. uh, that sort of that idea of what those things mean. Yes, sometimes I think absolutely competition is important innovation comes out yeah. of competition and economies can evolve out of competition people can go from poverty to having a non-poverty experience out of competition mm -hmm. but it also if it's only competition without cooperation then we get completely out of balance and it probably gets out of balance yeah we're, we're no longer a the society. other way yeah. as well and at the moment i think we're seeing that competition in some ways has crumbled. I mean, by the very nature of the disease that has gone around the world, a lot of what is considered mm. competition has been taken away, whereas cooperation has been 
you know, more important. And when we've had a failing mm. in our systems, you know, people not cooperating on behalf of others, it's it's shown to be the thing that has failed us, you know, in this very crisis. I, I, I want to have optimism. I think that a lot of the time I yeah. have pessimism, but I think in the same way as wasting time on hate, I think wasting time on pe- mm. pessimism is probably self-indulgent as well. And it'd be better yeah. to, you know, ensure that, that we have, you know, perhaps a, a better path out of this, that we learn the good stuff yeah, out of what we're going definitely. through and make a better world out the other side. Because I think, I mean, I think there the world still feels very temporary right now. You know, it has for the, the way it's, the manner in which it's changed a lot in the last six months. At some point, it is going to feel more permanent. And I feel like, some of some parts of it will be hard, but knowing that we all have each other's back is going to be a really big thing. And as much as um, this pandemic is a disaster, um, it is not a disaster that has destroyed our food sources or abilities to communicate with one another. Um, there, there is enough resources for us to have comfortable and blessed lives. Um, and to stay in touch, like our 21st century luxuries are really quite remarkable. Um, um, it's not like a hurricane has gone and destroyed all the crops and we're all going to starve. Like we just need to, you know, and we have such incredible uh, automation that, that it is actually easy to bring easy to bring sustenance and, and, and sustainability to our lives. We just got to make sure that, you know, those efficiencies aren't just feeding the people at the very top. Um, uh, do you it's doable. do you care about uh, being remembered? Are you a person who cares about leaving some sort of legacy? I think so. I think I think because because I believe that there's no um, consciousness beyond this that um, having a legacy is important. Yes. What would you hope um, people say about you when you're gone? Like this is not uh, you know yeah you don't have to guess what they're going to. This is. Fantasy, mm. you know, band camp. You get to say what they're <laughs> going to say about you when you're gone. What would you love that people say about you when you're gone? Oh, I, I would like for my words to keep teaching people after I'm gone. I think I would like to and still bring joy to people after I'm gone. I'd like to, people to think that I'm still funny, and what I have to say is still important. When are you most proud of yourself? Um, when when other people recognise me. <laughs> <laughs> I draw most of my I draw most of my self worth from the praise of others. Yes. Uh, when 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 do you feel like you're being the the worst version of Jordan that you can be? Uh, when I'm hating myself, I think. Yeah, I think I think uh, I am the person I am cruelest to in the world is me, and realizing or having it pointed out to me when some you know when my my um, counselor said the way that you talk about yourself you do not talk about anybody else in the world as poorly as you talk about yourself and that was really eye-opening for me uh i love to ask the question if you could just learn any uh, you don't need to learn this skill you don't need to do your ten thousand hours you, i have a magic mm. wand and i can give you any ability in the world you can sing like the best singer in the world you can you I know do. play professional sport well yes of course that's why i use yep. that as my example for you because <laughs> i knew it was one that you didn't have to uh you yeah. know add to your repertoire but it can be any skill of any kind what sure. would be your fantasy skill yeah look i mean for a long time in my life that magic wand would would turn me into a cisgender woman um 
but I, I would like to be a more competent uh, dancer. I would like to be able to perform choreography effortlessly. Um, I think I'm, I, I can dance on my own pretty com- well. I'm a pretty good mover and shaker, but I would like, I would like the ability to 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 be able to dance chore- choreography effortlessly. Uh, when was the last time you cried? Oh, last night. Had a bit of a, a bit of a cry. It's good. Needed it. <laughs> Just a bit tired. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I've been working yep. too much and streaming too much. Uh, how do you balance uh, your work life with your actual life? The work life balance is something I'm fascinated by. They are by. completely out, imbalanced. Mm. Uh, always a perpetual, it's a constant struggle and I'm working on it. Um, and it's it's even more difficult now that all my work and my home are all occupy the same physical space. Um, um, it, it, is, it is, I mean, ADHD ordering things is, is a big problem separating parts of my life is a big problem I, I used to do it by having making sure that if I was at home the only place I worked was at my desk um, and if I was occupying other space in my home I wasn't at work and I had multiple desks for multiple things I tried to create structures in physical space um, to to keep me to keep me balanced but now that everything is in this apartment um, that is getting harder uh, the final question. Could I please, uh, firstly, thank you for this. This was the best. You, you, there's so many oh, things awesome. you've said today that have just absolutely blown my mind. Like, you know, I'm so pleased. Yes. Yeah, I'm so pleased I won at Willosophy. <laughs> you, uh, you definitely did, yeah. And I keep a scorecard. People don't know that. You've revealed yeah. it. But I keep a scorecard okay, of every episode. <laughs> and this one is very high scoring. Um, oh, excellent. But, yeah, no, just so many good things. And I really just appreciate your time and uh, everything mm-hmm. that you've uh, shared today. Can we plug some stuff before we – I'll do an intro where I'll plug all these things. Yep. But we do this one here at the end so you can tell me what you'd like me to plug uh, most yeah well the thing you should plug most is, is my twitch channel that i i now um stream to twitch and have done so for the last few months and it's something i i really 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 love um you know a lot of people see twitch as just a gaming platform but um i have a channel that is kind of full of 80s and 90s nostalgia and we have lovely conversations about serious topics we play games occasionally um and there's a lovely community there and it is such a wonderful joyous space and i'm so fortunate to have it in this um difficult time uh so if you look jordan uh, jordan rasco on twitch join the community there i go live um a couple of times a week and we hang out for a few hours and uh we just have a marvelous time there's lovely people there you'd love to meet them. uh this is the final question so i have a time yeah. machine i have one round trip mm-hmm. for you you don't need mm-hmm. to um fix things i'm gonna send someone qualified back to kill baby hitler i'm gonna you know okay. those sort of things are other people's responsibilities this is purely mm-hmm your fantasy round trip and you get to go to either uh, you know a moment in history and you know observe Mm -hmm. it um or maybe to a moment in your own life and observe or change it what what how Mm. would you use the time machine um i mean ultimately um when when i think of time time machine questions I, i i remember that the world has been very poor place to exist as a transgender person so um i don't think i would want to travel to anywhere in human history i would like to go see the dinosaurs please oh yeah that's good go way back i should have mentioned yeah. you can also go yeah. forward if if that if okay. that if, if that appeals no, to you no i would at like all. to see the dinosaurs the dinosaurs please. okay yeah. Yep. Look, you'll have to sign some waivers. It's dangerous, the dinosaur <laughs> trip, that's all. Yeah, that's all right. But um, I love dinosaurs. Everybody loves dinosaurs, I right? can take you back to when the scientists were f- planting the fake dinosaur bones, but unfortunately... 
Oh yeah, five thousand years ago when God made the world old. Um, and I've got this set to religious again. I... Yeah. Can you? Do you have a favorite dinosaur? Can I ask you if you have a favorite dinosaur? Um, that is an interesting question. Do I have a favorite dinosaur? Um, uh, which was the veg? Uh, how many were vegetarian? I know there was some, at least. Oh, a good number. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I definitely was fascinated so veg- when I was at school with the vegetarian dinosaurs. I wasn't a vegetarian okay. at the time, but yeah. I remember because I've been a vegetarian twenty years or something now. But mm-hmm. I reckon that was my first, you know, when I was just looking at these dinosaurs, going, "Oh, they were cool big dinosaurs, and all they ate was yeah. vegetables. They didn't need to eat meat." That was like young Will kind of putting together. Yeah, cool. the, I didn't quite know That's that. Really nice. Fifteen years later, I would end up stop eating meat myself, but I think that was the first time <laughs> I thought about it. Well, mine's the Pachycephalosaurus, so there you go. Uh, well, that is the standard <laughs> question I ask people, so I should have had yeah. one up my sleeve. Uh, thank you so much for this. I really have appreciated it. It's been super fun. Thank you, mate. No worries. My pleasure.